Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Okay, I'm very excited to share this episode with horror author Paul Tremblay with you. Um, but I want to talk about horror a little bit um, and just what I've been thinking about it lately. I mean, horror obviously has a huge part uh, to play in my life and my creativity. Um, not only do I love reading horror, and I always have um, since I started reading books, uh, I mean, even, I suppose, some of those early picture books I read could be classified as like children's horror. The Monster at the End of This Book, which Paul and I talk about, um, Lamont the Lonely Monster, Monster Island, monsters, 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 obsessed with monsters. However, also plays a role in my creativity and my, my writing, my novel that's coming out next year, Hawk Mountain, has some horror themes in it. Um, I love watching horror movies. I love talking about fear and darkness and evil. And you might wonder why. <laughs> I mean, I certainly do. But, you know, it's because it's endlessly opening up to me new things to think about, new things to consider. And so one of the things that's been on my mind lately is this quote from uh, the German philosopher Walter Benjamin. And Walter Benjamin uh, said or wrote, the state of emergency we live in is not the exception, but the rule. The state of emergency we live in is not the exception, but the rule. And as I was thinking about horror before I had my conversation with Paul, I was thinking, you know, can't we also say that the state of horror is not the exception, but the rule? The aberration, the aberration, the apparition, I like my Freudian slip there. Um, the aberration is not that um, things are not horrific. Actually, there's kind of a low hum of horror always happening. So it's not that it's always on for us, like we're not always in a state of horror, but what does it mean that we're kind of soaking in horror all the time and at certain points we notice it? Like maybe horror is just a type of attention we give something. I'm kind of borrowing this from Walter Kendrick, uh, the scholar and historian's uh, idea about what pornography is. Um, he wrote a great book called The Secret Museum, and he said that porn is a way of looking. Because after all, can't underwear catalogs be porn? Can't people on the subway be pornography for you when you think about them? Hopefully not when you're on the subway. I don't know. Whatever you do. Um, <laughs> teachers, uh, you know, <laughs> that you had when you were younger, reality TV, whatever. Some people object them. Sexuals become aroused by objects, right? So anything can become translated into our pornographic imagination if we regard it with a certain emphasis or gesture of desire and or arousal. Now, I don't really think Kendrick's definition of pornography is complete, but it's a better one than most people offer. And I think the same can be said for horror in a sense. So for instance, body horror, like if you think of David Cronenberg movies or whatever, just some gore movies, it's inescapable that when you shake hands with someone, aside from fears of disease and so forth, you're grasping the living blood vessels attached to, you know, viscera excreting moving organs. I mean, all that is going on when you encounter someone, but unless you turn your attention to it, you're not going to receive 
that sort of messaging or that feeling. But if you turn to it with a kind of horror, something else happens. Um, you know, and we can turn that on or off as we please. There's that great documentary, Sick, about Bob, Bob Flanagan, the super masochist. Um, and many of the things he does to his body, we regard, if you're not a super masochist uh, or a super sadist, I suppose, as horrific. Um, but for him, they were arousing in a different way. Um, they fulfilled something else besides horror for him. And I think, like, if we regard the body in a certain way, we regard things that people do with their bodies in a certain way, it can, it can arouse a sort of horror in us. But it takes that first gesture. Maybe we feel we can control it, maybe not. Sometimes it creeps in on us, and maybe everybody has different horror matrices in their own personalities. Um, or like, okay, so when you go to sleep, for instance, for a lot of people, sleep is restful, and for many others, it's restive. I mean, if you are afraid you're going to have nightmares or you're going to be visited by shadow people because you have sleep paralysis, you might regard this most restful, wonderful state that many people have with absolute horror, even during the day, before you go to sleep eating. I mean, each time we eat, the world awaits us with choking, poisoning, delivering tortured animals from crowded factory farms injected with chemicals and corralled into their own filth, screaming as they're slaughtered into our bodies. So the kind of attentiveness we give the world can bring horror. And love, of course, love deserves probably no explanation, needs, requires no explanation here. The fear that your lover will betray you is betraying you. Maybe if you're with somebody, your lover is betraying you right now. Anyway, we can bring our attention to any of this. <laughs> and, and when we don't, the hum of the scream remains. Because, of course, even in the moments when we're off, when we're not regarding something with horror... Someone else is suffering horror in this wide world, sometimes almost unimaginable horror. Now, I know somebody who works for uh, Facebook, content moderation, and they're witnessing horror all the time and trying to keep it at bay in a certain way. Now, I don't know what we feel or what we should feel about how much to keep at bay from the public, but these images, these videos, the, all, the, all the stuff that's coming through is completely horrific. And then you consider that, you know, when you go on Twitter and people are complaining that so-and-so made some untowards comment to someone and how dare the moderators not block this person, or on Facebook, how dare they still have their account for saying something that's mildly uncomfortable when in fact there's, a com there's like a complete business, an industry built around turning human beings into the filter for horror so that it exploits them it goes into them they become the organic living filter for the horror that you don't want to see and then we get angry at those exploited workers for whatever so sometimes even to not see horror i mean this is rather uh you know prescient example it's not an extreme one it's happening right now we expect others to absorb the horror for us, to become human shields between us and horror and that attentiveness that we might give. Horror is a being in some ways that alights on a sight. It's like an apparition. It is 
uh, an entity that shows up. And when we see it there in whatever location, it's hard to shake it. And of course, the inverse of this is accepting things as they are. The, the loving world, loving the world, loving what is, as uh, Byron Katie might say, it, it's allowing horror um, to actually just be part of how we see the world and saying, okay, this is part of how things work. I'm going to incorporate this into my view of reality, and I'm going to give love not to sustain the horror, but actually to transmute it. Um, or maybe uh, we could say artistically, like allowing horror to stay in the confines of art uh, or the space just beyond the ionosphere um, maybe could contain horror. Um, there's a great podcast called Weird Studies, and if you don't listen to it, you should listen to it. It's hosted by Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. And one thing J.F. said on an episode about John Carpenter was the hope is that art saves us in reality by damning us in art. And I just think that's an amazing thing to say, that maybe there are things that can contain horror, and they contain it because we love it, because we love art, because we love creativity, we would love encountering horror in the space of art where characters might be facing unimaginable consequences or unimaginable uh, disasters or encounters with entities or whatever it is and we can see that the creative gesture can contain that in a way and also of course that joy i was talking about before that ap approaching the world with a sort of love horror can't touch that it can't approach that kind of love there are many horror narratives that try to approach or subvert that so like they're following actually the claustrophobic horror narrative of cognitive science and evolutionary psychology that perhaps love is just absolutely illusory. There is no free will. It's all just chemicals and motion. And maybe the life force itself is just, you know, uh, mechanics or, or, or worse. Maybe you think the life force itself is evil. Maybe love is a delusion, but even that couldn't withstand love. Even if it were true, it couldn't withstand the truth that love would bring to it. When Love comes, to refer to a quite popular book, <laughs> it comes to bring not peace but a sword that cuts the dull, vacant opaqueness of materialism, which contains a horror aspect, a horror self. And it opens it to let the light out and to let the light in. Anyway, don't take this tension that you know, that, that I'm talking about is any sort of gospel on horror. It's obviously not even a theory. I'm just sort of wandering through some ideas and letting them correlate themselves and whatever you think about it. It's just one way to look at horror. There are many ways to look at horror. This is just one, but it's one that I think of when I read my guests' books. Paul Tremblay is the author of a lot of great horror novels and stories and some detective novels as well. Very versatile as a writer. He's the author of one of my favorite horror novels ever, Disappearance at Devil's Rock. Um, he's the author of The Cabin at the End of the World, his more recent novel, Survivor Song, which is about a pandemic, which he wrote before uh, the pandemic that we've endured and are enduring. And Paul has become a sort of address 
for creative depths of anxiety and brutality and the ways those move back and forth with love, with people trying to love each other, being calm and caring families, surviving disasters, making difficult decisions, holding each other in the darkness. When I read Paul's books, I think, thank goodness someone has the courage to show absolute horror so that overcoming it is possible, or at the very least, when death and suffering occur in art, they are regarded with horror. Paul's horror alights on free will versus determinism, the horror of the unknowability of other people, the tactics of survival, the postmodern shattering of traditional narrative structures, and more. And it's all compellingly readable, of course, which is why his books are popular bestsellers. Now, I'm really excited to share this episode with you. This show exists only, only because of Patreon patrons who support it via patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. If you're one of the patrons for the show, thank you so much. I could not do this without you, and I can always use all the help I can get making this show. And knowing that it's fully listener-supported and not sponsored by products I don't care about but would have to pretend to care about and make announcements about and all that, that makes me so happy that I don't have to do that, and it makes the show better, I think. This show is about connecting people. It's not about products. It's about connecting people to ideas, to conversations, and to each other. And if you like this episode and you don't support the show, please do support it. Go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Look, you can give a buck a month or $3 a month, $5 a month, 10 euro, 11 pounds, other currencies, whatever. And you should know when you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support the show, there's a whole back catalog of horror-related episodes if you like this one. Um, there's one about the dark imagination with uh, young adult and dark fantasy writer Sarah Maria Griffin uh, with postmodern, uh, intensely violent and great um, horror writer Brian Evanson. Uh, detective fiction writer and uh, horror author Sarah Gran. Um, I talk about vampires and monsters as kinds of theories with the amazing writers Kelly Link and Jordy Rosenberg on the same episode. They're on the same episode. And even horror and poetry with Zachary Schomburg on episode 40. Um, so to you know, support the show, so support the show, dive into the dark waters of its back catalog, and here's... My conversation with Paul Tremblay. Here we go. Hey, everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and hello, Paul Tremblay. Hey, Connor. Great to be here. Yeah, I've um, been meaning to set this up for a long time. Um, so, and uh, my friend Sarah Maria Griffin uh, was talking about you on Twitter the other day, and I was like, I really just got to make that happen. <laughs> so here we go. Um, yeah, that was so cool. Uh, you know, not expected. You know, very happy that, you know, Sarah found the books and liked them. <laughs> yeah, she, she went on a bender, which I appreciate, because that's what I do whenever I record the show. I anything that's unread by the person that I have on, I read all of it. And it's just so like 
really present in my head right now. <laughs> now, book vendors are the most fun. I mean, you know, that yeah. excitement of, you know, discovering someone, not only someone like a new book, but someone who's got like this backlist that you instantly want to go through. That's cool. So one of the things I notice in your writing, and in fact, you've commented on it in brief, but you write a lot about characters who in some ways have no choice. So they end up being, you know, committing terrible acts um, because they, you know, they either don't or they think they don't have a choice. So whether it's because they have some rabies virus by their, they're compelled by a mysterious voice, they're possessed. Um, And I had a question about that because I know, you know, you're also a math teacher and I'm, and there's a certainly a kind of determinism to a lot of mathematics. And I was wondering if this sort of struggle of a determined universe is something that's constantly playing out for you, if that actually is a, a horrible thought to you or maybe an appealing one because you teach it in some ways. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I, you know, I hadn't thought of it in math terms, but geez, maybe I should start using that because people ask me about the math part all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's maybe, I don't, because I don't necessarily believe it's, you know, I don't necessarily believe in determinism, but I do think uh, insofar as like we're fated uh, by the universe to be deterministic, I think our lives can be determined certainly by culture, by class, by, you know, by, you know, who and where you were born. Obviously those things are almost, you know, for, for most of us, impossible hurdles uh, or walls to overcome. So I think so many of my stories um, you know, deal with, you know, people who are up against, you know, sort of the gears of, you know, I don't want to say the gears of the universe, but it's the gears of what's happening to them or happening around them, whether it be, you know, others intruding on them or, or just even sort of, you know, the gears of of society <laughs> or, you know, or the universe. So I don't know, I'm, I'm, I remain, you know, very interested in what sort of decisions the characters are going to make when they're in that position. And the other half of it, like the idea of choice. Um, you know, with horror, I think there's two, there's two sides to that coin. The other side, which I think is a little trickier to explore, but more fun at times is the idea of how, um, what's the word I'm looking for? How like enticing the idea of having no choice could be, right? Because if, mm-hmm. if you believe you have no choice, you know, there's almost like a sigh of relief. It's like, oh, well, there goes all my responsibilities. I just, I'm going to do this thing. I don't have to worry about personal responsibility, right? I mean, I think that's the sort of the, you know, the devious attraction of believing, oh, you know, there's no choice like that, that break with the social compact. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting, right? Cause then I guess certain gradations of horror, they all have a kind of like a different balance with that. Like how much, I mean, I, it's, it's a, it's a funny one because I don't really think about that that much. Like I tend to think of, like in horror, there's a lot of times a like a balance between or like some sort of ratio or whatever between who's believed and who's not believed and how mm. far that gets you. You know, like so many horror stories take just so much time making the person who sees the horrible thing not believed until suddenly it bursts through and it's undeniable. Right. But I think maybe there's also this freedom question, which I haven't really thought about, like how free you know, how free really are you? And, and to that extent, it could be horrible either way, right? Like it could be, yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, certainly go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna say like, you know, I'm thinking like cabinet at the end of the world, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the invaders, 
you know, I'd say, you know, three of the four. I mean, one's sort of like a clear mustache twisting sort of villain. But like, especially the, you know, the last one that's left. I mean, I think her experience is a horror to believe that she has no choice, even though she knows what she's doing is, is awful. Um, you know, I thought, you know, I didn't want people to sympathize with her, but I did want people to sort of recognize that that sort of thought process. You know, I think that's why so many people are interested in cults, right? You know, the idea of just giving yourself over, of of um, surrendering to the idea of surrendering to almost like the uh, the ecstasy of having no choice. Um, mm, I don't mm. know. I mean, <laughs> that's where so many religions sort of live, right? Not to not to cast aspersions on all religion, sure. But you know, even something like a head full of ghosts, where you know the father who's clearly sort of portrayed, or I think most readers, you know, see him as sort of a you know a villain for lack of a better term. But again, like he's to keep someone who believes he has no choice. He, this is what his religion tells him you should do kind of thing. You know, we can just certainly disagree with his actions, but, you know, maybe a piece of us can sort of, maybe sort of try to understand, you know, where he's coming from kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because I, I like, I like those muddied waters, you know. Yeah, I felt really sympathetic with him actually when, when I read it. So, I mean, for people Good. who don't, who haven't read the book, just maybe one little thing I can say about that moment is, so there's a, there's a daughter who may or may not be possessed. Um, and the, the, her father against his mother's, her mother's wishes um, consults with the priest. And it seems like there's a lot more going on that might be a little sinister in his consultation and, and also with the priest. And I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Cause also like, it's funny that you would sort of give that over religion. Cause also of course, like, like evolutionary psychology or certain forms of, you know, certain forms of um, scientific inquiry would would present that things are just completely programmed, or right. you know, that we're doing things in service of uh, genetic needs or whatever that is. And so, it can really fall anywhere. I mean, <laughs> and, and but I, but I think like um, yeah, there's this quote from Rudolf Steiner, who I, which I I turn to a lot, which is. Um, man is not free. He is on his way to becoming free, you know? And I mm. think that's sort of a turnaround where it's like the default is that, um, the default is that we're unfree until we actually commit a free act, which is very difficult to do. But I think that that is also something I see is there's a, you know, in, in your work, like this commitment to illustrating in some sense, sacrifice, not to make you a religious writer again, <laughs> but there's, there's a way yeah. in which the sacrifice is actually like when someone becomes self-sacrificial a lot of times, that's the moment where you can really see them rising up out of their circumstances, you know, in, in order to save the other, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, hopefully I think it sort of happens like in a, you know, in a humanism or humanistic way, you know, to, to go back to, to cabin without spoiling anything, you know, cavity in the world, to me, that story becomes, it doesn't, to me, the story is not whether or not the world is ending. That's not a spoiler. That's sort of the question that hangs over the whole novel. But to me, the ultimate question of the novel is a choice that, you know, a couple of the characters have to make. You know, do they choose fear or do they choose really sort of love or a kind of freedom that is terrifying in a lot of ways? Um, so, yeah, no, that's a great quote. Um, what you said earlier about, you know, on the way to freedom. <laughs> well, I mean, I like that you keep turning to Cabin at the End of the World. So that's the first book. I read of yours and um, I'm glad I read it first because it taught me right away that nobody's safe in your, in your books. And always like, yeah. I want that feeling of complete, you know, like unsafety with the characters, not like, nah, I know the dog will get through or whatever it is when you're watching, right. 
you know, I always want to feel totally threatened by my attachments <laughs> when I'm reading. But I think like, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's a, it's an interesting one to bring to this question because, and so maybe for those who haven't read that, it's just that, you know, uh, there's a family who's approached by a bunch of strangers who start enacting violence uh, by saying that they've heard voices in that are commanding them to stop the end of the world. And if they don't commit these acts of violence, the world will end. And and one of the things that makes that horrific, again, is like there's, um, so it's not just the freedom part, but there's also this unknowability of the other person because it kind of has to be taken on faith that the other person really ex- uh, believes or knows what they know um, because the family is sort of watching them be violent and threatening and intimidating and scary. And they have to be like, and, and there's, there's at no point can they, it's, it's very hard for them to say like, Oh, actually we should trust these people who are doing horrible things. And sometimes that's the right decision. Usually we would say that's the right decision. If you see someone doing something horrible, generally don't trust them, you know, right. <laughs> because, but sometimes it's not so simple. And I think that that's, that's a horrific choice as well to realize that you can't know the other, even if they're doing something that's, you know, awful um, or seems awful from the outside. When I first started writing, um, I wrote almost exclusively in first person, you know, part of that because it just felt a little bit easier to me, but like, as I, you know, got further into this writing thing, you know, one of the things I realized that attracted me to first person, you know, aside from that's how we view the world. But it's that precise idea. Like to me, writing—if you write in first person, it's a challenge because how do you know that other person, you, uh, the other characters who aren't the first person? Mm-hmm. You can't go into their heads. You, you only know them by their actions and what they're saying. Um, I don't know. Like if you think about that too long, that kind of freaks you out. Um, <laughs> so, but you know, even though I only mention that because you know, Cabin's not written in first person, but um, that idea has stuck with me about you know mm-hmm. how how you know one of the sort of horrors of existence. Um, is, you know, you really don't know anybody else. Um, you know, mm. people you live with for 20 years, 25 years, or what if, you know, you, you're with your partner for, you know, 30, 40 years, and, you know, then they start succumbing to Alzheimer's or something else, and it totally changes them. It's just, um, yeah, to me, like, identity, memory, um, all those things are perfect fodder for not only horror, but sort of like an ambiguous kind of horror, too. Yeah, I mean, it's really, and... It's really, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, like the horror of relationships, you know, like you, you're with somebody for a long time. I mean, this one's in my head because someone recently just kind of hurt my feelings out of the blue and I was, I'm sorry. No, (laughs) anyway, here's the situation, Paul. No, I just wanted to bring it up, but it was such a surprise when it happened um, that it, it, I just completely lost my bearings. And then I was a dick, right? Cause you know, you never know how you're going to respond in situations, but it's like you, um, you have like that threat is always hanging um, where you just can't know if someone's going to turn on you. It doesn't matter how nice they are. Right. So the only thing you can do really, and, and in the same way, it's sort of like the, the, the brain in a jar problem. Like do other people exist or is it all in my thoughts? Like you really can't ever know that. Mm. So the only way that you can actually accept that others exist or that they're not going to harm you is by, is through love. So in some ways it is, and by saying, okay, I love like, therefore others must exist because 
I'm going to say that they do. And that's an act of mm-hmm. love. You know, that's a decision that to, to be compassionate to others. And so I think that, you know, maybe in some ways these, um, that unknowability is just like where love is withdrawn, you know, um, that fear of the others where it's withdrawn. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, th- I think you're totally onto something there. Um, you know, for me, you know, part of the, you know, the shared horror of the, the last year and a half has been, you know, not only everything that's happened, but also myself sort of leaning into like the agoraphobic, like I'm just going to stay at home where it's safer kind of ah. thing. Um, you know, so like the idea of like, we're, you know, so many of us are just retreating uh, and continue to retreat. Whereas um, you're right. Like, you know, for, for, for many of us, not all, obviously I know like <laughs> there are many people who, you know, don't need to be around other people, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I definitely do. Like I, I can't be in my head for too long. Otherwise it starts, you know, mm-hmm. the squirrels start multiplying up there. Um, and I was reminded of that fairly recently, like a good friend I hadn't seen and like a year and a half came over for two days because uh, we're both vaccinated. And we were joking that this was a mini convention. Um, mm. You know, and I, I I'd weirdly been saying like, yeah, I don't think I'd see myself going to conventions anymore. But that was a reminder. It's like, you know, I miss, even though like I have no idea what other people are thinking or what they're doing. I do miss sort of mm. that other people at that level. Not to bum everybody out out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I mean, no, it's really, I wish someone would actually write a story about that, like a horror story, this, this like dreaded return to sociability. Like, cause we talk so much about the fear of like, you know, I mean, I like that story too. And obviously you've written a whole uh, newer, newer novel right. about it, where it's like society fra- fragments and, and breaks apart, but the aftermath is really scary. And there, I mean, there's, there's glimpses of that in zombie novels where the, you know, the group, you know, and every end of the world novel, right you know, well, not everyone, cause not in cabin uh, at the end of the world, but yeah. like in every end of the world novel, there's like, you, you meet the wandering band of people who aren't dealing with it so well and have given up their humanity to cannibalize others and blah, blah, blah. Right. But that's not really it. Like, what about like when things get better and people are just trying to get back into their lives? It's really like, that's, that's hor that's horrifying, you know? Yeah. No. And that's something I try to do a tiny little bit of that with survivor song. And really it's only the the epilogue that you get that like it's important to me in that novel survivor song which came out last summer um that you know i tell the readers it's not a spoiler you know it's a super rabies outbreak and it's actually pretty localized in massachusetts um you know <laughs> so I don't, go, the reader, so don't go to massachusetts yeah don't go to massachusetts it's, <laughs> you know i mentioned to the reader that hey you know this isn't the end of the world it's not even the end of massachusetts you know things eventually sort of <laughs> claw back to like a new normal uh and to me that made it more I don't know, hopefully it made it more poignant or even um, tragic, you know, for the characters who didn't make it because if they could have just held on for, you know, a few more, a few more weeks to a month, you know, and the epilogue without getting spoiler, it does represent sort of mm. the world going on and, you know, the lives of some of the characters being, you know, not shattered, but subtly changed, you know, for one of the characters, it may be sort of a horrific change or, or a shade of horror or may not. I don't know. I mean, I think that's a great point um, about, it'd be interesting to see a story where it's, you know, the subtle, <laughs> the subtlety of having to return back after, hmm. you know, a pandemic sort of cataclysm. Well, it's, it's interesting you're bringing up the Massachusetts thing. Cause something I kept thinking when I was reading survivor song is that, <clears throat> you know, I live in Dublin. There's no rabies in Ireland. It's a completely rabies free oh, yeah. country. And so, I mean, it hit me because I'm from the U S and I lived in Massachusetts for a long time, <laughs> but, but then coming here, you know, even there are no dangerous animals here at all. Like there are no 
there's nothing like if you just walk out mm. around at night, nothing can hurt you. There are no, no snakes, skunks. no no but no skunks, like nothing. Oh. There are ticks, <laughs> and I in fact actually yeah. found a tick on myself yesterday. But that's it. It's like yeah. there's no. Aside from that, you're fine. Even the ocean, you know, there are just no sharks. Like there's no, right. you know, it's so hospitable. And um, <clears throat> so I was thinking about, you know, how people read that, read that book here um, and how it's, I mean, obviously it has a lot of just crossover with zombie novels and, and, and that sort of thing. And in fact, that's brought up in the book so many times, but um, the way horror changes in effect, when you move from one place to another, like even I think suburban horror, you couldn't quite do that here. And people would still read suburban horror novels, mm-hmm. like, but they, and, and enjoy them. But there's always this kind of like distance, whereas I grew up in the suburbs in Pennsylvania. So like your favorite setting of the place of horror, which is like the kitchen table or the dinner table, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It's like real, like it's really visceral for me. Um, but it must be viewed with a kind of a slight distance, maybe in the way that we could be scared by seeing alien, but not like we're not in it scared. We're outside of it scared. Does that. Right. No, that that's very, sense? yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, you know, for survivor song, for me, the weird experience, I mean, of all weird experiences, what, you know, has been, you know, I, with the exception of maybe like five people in the world, <laughs> you know, everyone has read that book in the context of COVID. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that totally, like it, you know, it changes the read for everybody. Like, I can't tell you how many people have commented on, like, there's a passage where I say X amount of people die. Like, oh, way under. Not that I wanted to be accurate. But it was like, well, it's also just Massachusetts. It's not, <laughs> you know, and it's not a pandemic. And everyone describes it as a pandemic novel. It's like, no. But I understand why. Like, mm-hmm. reading it now, I mean, that's sort of the thing you try to do as a writer. When I say the thing. Like I always am thinking about trying to leave enough space for the reader to bring their experience to the story. Um, you know, I certainly wasn't when I wrote Survivor Song, I wasn't hoping there would be a pandemic to bring that experience. <laughs> not. But I mean that that just, you know, that happened. Uh yeah. So I mean, so that book has a totally different life than what I imagined it would have. Like, you know, if people had read it with no, you know, I wish we'd had no pandemic for millions of reasons. Uh, you know, a million and one would be you know, just because of the stupid book, but yeah, I w- it would have been a totally different read because my view on the book has changed. Like when I first wrote it, I thought the epilogue was a lot more horrific. And mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. I can see why, and it is a lot more hopeful. Um, yeah. But yeah, the thing with setting, uh, you know, you're making me think of like, you know, having read one of Sarah's books recently, we were talking about before Sarah Maria Griffin, uh, another, I'm terrible with titles, another, another word for smoke, smoke, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, so when I read it, because I've never been to Ireland, it's like, oh, I'm just imagining like rural America sort of, Mm. Um, you know, I don't know how like, you know, is that all of Ireland? Obviously not the the city part. So yeah, uh, great. Now I'm going to be just totally thinking about my settings. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you can at least be glad that you're not, was it Dean Koontz who wrote that book about a pandemic that like started in Wuhan and all that kind of stuff like years ago? Oh yeah, did he? No. It was just like this whole like... (laughs) Everybody's like, wait, everything is the same. Like at least jerks is like, okay, there's a pandemic and people are being assholes on the internet and you know what I mean? (laughs) And and, and services aren't supplied and all that kind of stuff. But like, yeah, I think his was like super specific to the point where people are like, he knew, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing we all knew. I mean, anyone paying attention, it was a matter of when, not if. Yeah. So all that information was out there. 
Um, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I wanted to um, maybe talk about this other, you know, so there's chance, there's choice, no choice. And then I'm thinking there's this other sort of straddling. There's actually a lot of liminal stuff for your book. So one of the other kinds of straddling of two worlds is there's the supernatural, not supernatural thing. And one, you know, I find myself drawn to supernatural horror way more. And and you've said so as well. Like I'm not super into slasher stuff yeah. and I'm not either. However, like your books don't quite really become supernatural for the <laughs> most part. I mean, you're, yeah. you know, like That's they're right. not slasher novels for sure, but like, um, but it's, it's interesting to me that, there's this, you know, there there could always be this sort of like tipping point. Like I think, well, you said you like Joyce Carol. Yeah. She'll, she'll do that. Dan Sean does it. Like a lot of people will do this kind of balancing act. And so I wanted to ask about that because in some ways I actually think that's where we all live. Like when yeah. we, we can't interpret so many experiences, um, we get, especially in, in death and in relationships, like as my friend Peter Peter Rollins says this like relationships are filled with signs and wonders and he's a total atheist, but it's just like, he can't even deny that. Like it's just sure. filled with too much. So I think we all kind of have that, that space and you you're writing mostly in there, but every once in a while, I mean, so in growing things and growing things, there's a lot of supernatural stuff, but yeah. every once in a while you'll be like, okay, yeah, but really there's a, there's a supernatural element here, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's where the math thing comes in. Like if it's a novel, uh, I have a hard time overcoming my sort of <laughs> agnostic, you know, skeptical self. Um, but also at the same time, it somewhat happened organically with the three books. Like when I wrote A Head Full of Ghosts, I mean, the ambiguity was the theme of the book. Like it can't ever be there just to be kind of like, oh, it's a trick or it's a twist, you know, just a lame twist at the end. Like I try to make it part of the theme of why the story is. And to me, like the horror of a head full of ghosts is the fact that we don't know um, is the mm. ambiguity. And, you know, you mentioned death before. I mean, that's the ultimate ambiguity. Like we don't know what's going to happen when we die. You may mm. believe, you may think, you know, what happens, but you don't really know. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think most, if not all horror, even if death's not happening on the page, it's, it's sort of, it's there. It's, it's a threat. It's referencing that. Um, which I think is why so many readers have such a hard time with ambiguity because of their, yeah, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I guess I'm talking more about American readers because it's, <laughs> this is such a religious country. Like so many readers just have a hard time with the ambiguity part. And I think that reflects sort of that, that worldview, that mindset that they, you know, of their Judeo-Christian beliefs. Um, I don't know. And I, I like to try to fuck with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. Say. Yeah. But again, but still, it has to be like part and parcel of the story. Um, you know, mm. same with Cabin and, and Head Full of Ghosts, who took a similar approach. The novel in between Disappearance of Devil's Rock. I do think I lean one way toward an answer as to whether there's something supernatural happening. But I also know I can't do that forever with every book either, which is why, you know, Survivor Song, you know, has no supernatural element. The book I just turned in my edits for sort of plays plays with supernatural ambiguity again, but hopefully in a different way. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, it can tip one way or the other. So one of the books that you you often say that you like is also one of my favorite horror novels, which is Come Closer by Sarah Gran. And that um, Sarah's, Sarah's been on the show. I, I, uh, I'll put it in the show notes for people who are listening, but right. um, which episode that is. But, 
you know, we talked about that and I, I forget, I'm going to screw up the author. Was it Elmore Leonard or someone gave her a blurb, some giant mm-hmm. mystery writer, crime writer. And he said something like the, you know, the psychological dissolution of one woman. And I was like, you know, she clearly says it's a demon, like in the book, there's right. no escaping. And I talked with Sarah about that. And she's like, yeah, but I just wasn't going to tell him. Like he was just too, <laughs> like, there was no way to tell this person that like, no, it's right there. And um, so I think it can tip the other way too, where people are like, mm-hmm. well, there's got to be some, you know, sort of explanation and not just for the characters who are searching for some sort of natural explanation for things very often. Right. But for like the reader, it's like, okay, but what's, what's really happening here? And again, you play with that a lot. I mean, in, in Headful of Ghosts, like that's the whole sort of back and forth mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing. And even, even, even I like, and I'm totally willing to go there with like the ghost, like, and the, the possession, but even yeah. I, at the sort of climax moment of that book was like, is it like, I just, and I don't think I'm supposed to be, I said, I think I'm supposed to go a bit further. Um, so I don't know. I mean, if there's some, there's, even if that's not, maybe that's not a horror trope, it's like a tension thing that you do um, that I really appreciate, but I think it, I think it fucks people. Up. <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways it, I mean, there's, there are rules for writing fiction. I mean, it is, sort of, you know, uh, blurry and we can break them all the time, but like whether, whether a lot of readers, you know, even like think about those rules or not, the rules are there. Like the idea of like, I need to know what happened. Mm. Like, like your story in some ways, like if it just doesn't make total sense, it's more like real life, but (laughs) it's less satisfying as fiction because, you know, we want to, we want those gears, we want those beats. And I don't know, like I'm, I'm interested, I'm I'm becoming more interested in stories that don't fit and become a little bit more real, even though like are closer to life as opposed, but still having like those liminal elements that we were talking about. Um, I don't know if I'm talking around a little bit, but this is some of the stuff that I've been thinking about after reading like George Saunders uh, book on writing called The Swim in the Rain in the Pond, which is very good. You know, I had to teach a writing class for the first time ever. It's like, "Ah, I better read some books by people (laughs) who know what they're doing because I only teach math. Um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, especially in short fiction, the idea of sort of these rules, again, obviously all writing rules are made to be broken, but you know, that's, you know, why do people read? I mean, you could go, you could talk, you know, for multiple hours, about why people read if it's escape or something else. But, you know, I do think reading is like an element of control over, you know, this, (laughs) you know, over our chaotic lives in some forms, or like me, I like seeing that chaos reflected because to me, that feels like a truth. And anytime, like, I can feel like, oh, okay, someone else sees this too. I take comfort in that, even if it's a horrible thing. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. I'm just, it's not just me. Someone else feels like this too. That's kind of what I look for when I read and hopefully try for when I write too, I think. Yeah, and it is, it is re- I don't know if you've read that um, that graphic novel, my friend Dom- Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever. I have, yeah. I mean, the thing that's so striking about that is, I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer is obviously like truly horrific, but the way he, when he was in school, his friends would ask him to do this weird thing where he would have sort of like seizures and and stuff. And he was faking it at first, but you get this growing sense that actually something's taking him over and taking him over and he's getting Mm. driven deeper and deeper into like tearing the animals apart. So it's almost as if, again, maybe it's a free will determinism thing where it's like, 
you have the choice and then suddenly you don't really have it anymore and you're in the grips of something and then right. and then you're then you're fucked you know <laughs> but but um yeah but i'm wondering though like <laughs> i don't want to i don't want you to like ruin your public reputation as a humanist but i wonder <laughs> sometimes cuz you said oh well i don't i kind of want to believe in ghosts but i don't believe in them but i almost wonder then is there like a Sorry to say it this way, but is there like a fear of approaching the supernatural then in your life? Like you want to believe it, but you, but you don't like, is that like, what's that wall? Like, cause it doesn't seem, right. especially cause it keeps showing up as like a, a fantasy for you that you express in your work. It doesn't seem like it could be like just a cynicism block or something like that. Yeah. Is there such a desire oh. there? Well, yeah. I mean, Part of, and this is not a spoiler, but part of Cabinet at the End of the World, like it's one of my fears. Like, what if there is a God and he's a raging asshole, like <laughs> God of the New Testament, right? I right. mean, holy shit. <laughs> uh, maybe that would go a long way to explaining how, you know, how, mm. you know millions and millions of people suffer and stuff. Hmm. Um, mm. I mean, so that there's that part of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up Catholic, but I mean, I didn't get very far. Like, I did first confession when I was age seven, even then, like I lied. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, I lied to the priest, but uh, yeah, it, it's funny. Like, I don't know. I like to think I, I, I try to remain open. Like, I mean, first and foremost, you know, even though I, I don't believe in stuff, I guess on some level I must or believe in the possibility because you know, I'm still <laughs> afraid of like the dark at times, especially if I have a terrible dream at night or even if I'm home by myself and there's weird noises, I start freaking myself out. You know, and then like a few hours later, I'm like, ah, oh, you're being so stupid. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Like, I like to think, oh, there's a scientific explanation. Like, you know, anytime people experience something out in the wild, that's strange. Maybe it's because natural occurring low wave frequencies were messing with their head. Like I'm into reading about those and how they affect the mind. But, you know, I, I don't know. Like, uh, so yeah, why not use sort of those fears? Um, you know, I'm starting to lean more. Well, I used to say it was like 99%. <laughs> No ghosts, nothing supernatural. I might be down to like ninety-seven. I, I've heard. <laughs> I, I did a talk. I did an interview with Chuck Wendig, and he was telling me how he, he grew up in a haunted house, and he sounded really sincere and the stuff that had happened. It was really weird. So I don't know. Like you know, I never want to come off as like, oh, I definitely know the answers. You know, yeah. These things. These things I believe. <laughs> well, I like. I love. First of all, I love for a title of a story, the three percent ghost. Like yeah, <laughs> the idea that thought, like you yeah. only got three percent. Um, but I. <laughs> but I think like. Um, yeah, I mean. <laughs> there, I mean, it, it, it makes me think that. Oh, wait, how do I? How do I get to the point? It, like you, okay. So you said one of your favorite books as a kid was also one of my favorite books as a kid, which is the monster at the end of this book, yeah. which is a book about <laughs> Grover from Sesame street. And so as you're turning the pages, Grover's like, there's a monster at the end of this book because he sees the title. And like, as you turn the pages, like he'll build like a brick wall and you'll turn the page and the brick wall will fall apart. And Grover's like, please don't go to the end of this book. Yeah. And you, as a reader, you're ruining Grover's life <laughs> as you read the book. Oh yeah, you're, you're totally just implicated. Like, yeah, so you're you're so implicated, and like at the end, it ends up that the monster is Grover, and you know, as Grover is just yeah. like total self love. He's like, it's me, it's just Grover, yeah. lovable, sweet <laughs> Grover, you know. But as you're turning 
you know, and you're thwarting them at every turn to like stop you from turning the pages. And so like one, what if there is a God and he's an asshole? You said, but like, what if there's a reader and he's an asshole? But then obviously, and really like, what if there's a writer and he's an asshole? Is the question. Oh, there's definitely a yes to that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> because I mean, you know, I'm thinking about like um, in, uh, in Survivor Song, there are characters from Disappearance of uh, Devil's Rock, yeah, which I want to talk about more. I think I, that book is just like mind blowing. Um, but but, yeah the um, survivor song there are characters from that book and i mean yeah whatever anybody listening to this it's going to spoil things for them but i don't think your books can be spoiled so we'll just let it go but these you know these characters don't have they they don't fare well in this book and one of the things that one of them says is like this isn't our story you know like this isn't Mm -hmm. our timeline this isn't ours this is the story of the main characters of this book and um and it seems like there's a real pity there that you were taking on them. I mean, you're you're quite compassionate with almost all your characters, which is great. But there's a real pity on them. Like you're like, I brought you in to like take you out. And it used to be your story, but it's not your story anymore. And mm-hmm. maybe in saying that and having the character say that, you're like, see, this isn't actually their universe though. They're in the other, they're <laughs> in the Tremblay verse or whatever. They're they're actually in the other. They're actually in the other book and that's where they live and their futures Mm -hmm. take place from there. They didn't really get to here. This isn't the same place. That's what it read like to me that you were, it was almost like a guilt or something (laughs) in a way of what if there's an author and he's an asshole to the characters. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I could have used that. Um, No, I mean, I can't say like I was consciously thinking that way, but it doesn't mean it's, it's, it's not there. It totally is. Um, You know, they were there to serve as a function. That's how I, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is not a big spoiler. Like when I was writing the book, it's like, you know, at, at a certain point, I need a couple of self-stylized zombie experts to show up. I'm like, oh, I already have those two. Uh. You know, it'd be kind of fun. And so, I mean, so something like that is like, you know, when writers talk about trusting your subconscious, like you may not know why they're there initially, but you hope by the time you write the thing that you can explain to yourself why, what's their role. If you can't, then you got to cut it and take it out. So initially it was just like, oh, cool. I get to reuse them again. But like, for me, the main purpose was, you know, to have a little bit of com- comedic relief, also service to the reader because the reader's thinking about zombies to let them know we know, we're, you know, we know the zombie war, <laughs> but also like I wanted to have their friendship to juxtapose to, to Rams and, and Natalie's friendship, you know, who are in their early to mid thirties, a much more adult friendship that's had ups and downs compared to this teen friendship. That's so intense. You mm-hmm. could almost maybe imagine Rams and Nats at that age, sort of having the same kind of friendship. Mm. But, uh, oh yeah, definitely a pity, uh, for them or, you know, care for that, for those two characters. So I mentioned that Saunders book and in that book, one of the things, there's some things I disagree with. I'm sorry. I mean, he's a genius, but, um, (laughs) but there are a couple of things that really struck me. One, he was quoting a different author and I cannot remember who he was quoting, but the idea that if the book that you write isn't smarter than you are, then you're not a good enough writer or you're not doing your job. Hmm. Just a little harsh, but I also think there's a lot of truth to that. Hmm. Um, hmm. Or certainly that's part of the aim for me. Like, I don't know, like I'm terrible at speaking extemporaneously. It's like, it took me a year to 15 months to write this. I hope this thing that I wrote right. <laughs> is certainly smarter than I am at any single moment. Um, right. And Saunders sort of extended it to saying like his, his stories are a bit, are, are, are better and more, like a better person than he is, you know, more compassionate, mm. which 
I think is a, a true thing for a lot of writers, which also explains why some writers who are pretty miserable people can write some stories that do have heart and uh -huh. humanity and stuff like that in there. Um, mm. um, so I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, I'll say their names, Josh and Luis. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers to Josh and Luis. Yeah. God. Okay. So there's so much there. So one, I want to point out that also in survivor song, there's a character named Paul who eats it pretty quickly. So there's some absolution, <laughs> yeah. pre absolution there, but, um, <laughs> and, and, and be careful with that because Grant Morrison, the comic book writer wrote this character in the invisibles who is based after him, who had his a disease, which made his lungs collapse. And then Grant Morrison's lungs collapsed and all oh, that. Nice. Wow. So if there is a rabies outbreak, Paul, just watch yourself. That, well, that Paul is five, nine and I'm six, four. So okay. But now I'm really worried though. Cause the novel I just finished and turned into my editor today uh, is called the Paul bearers club. The, and the main bearers. Yeah. And the main character is me just un, like under a different name. But it's, it's spelled, me, it's spelled Paul. It's spelled. No, it's, it's spelled like Paul. No, it's spelled. Okay. Like Paul Bears, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I just totally. Yeah. Essentially wrote like a <laughs> sort of a weird quasi memoir with some, <laughs> with some maybe supernatural stuff happening. Okay. Well, you can always just throw something in, just throw yeah. some character switch in to like mess up the resemblance. But uh, no, I mean, I think the thing with the book being smarter than you. Yeah. So, I mean, like one of the things I say about writing is like, you know, characters is that you always, you kind of want them to be just out of reach. Like you got to follow the desire so they can surprise you. Like you're having mm -hmm. a dream, you know, um, where even though it's in your head and you're constructing it, you can still be afraid or, you know, um, upset or whatever by a dream. Like right. how, how should you be surprised in a dream? It makes no sense, but you should be able to have it be just beyond you. And maybe I would agree with the George Saunders thing, quoting someone else in that sense that it has to be just out of your reach or like, um, Manuel Swedenborg, the mystic and engineer from I think like the, the 18th century. But he said like when an angel speaks, one word <clears throat> is an entire book of human language. And I think in some ways, like if you could express, if you really, if you could express it, plainly what well, i mean why write a novel like it has to be a, like the word of something that's bigger than you in some in some way like something that you can't even quite understand because it tests you as you write it so i like that you pulled on that because i completely i completely think that's true it's like you're chasing something down the whole time you're writing it you know mm. yeah i mean i almost for most of my characters i feel like you know, it's not, it's not anything like as lame as like, oh, the characters are real to me. No, mm -hmm. but like, you know, they become real on the page by having them say and do things, you know? So for me, it almost does become like a math equation. I can see what they say and do. And then something can be surprising later because it's the sum of all the things that they had done before that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't know, especially now writing, you know, in the time that we're writing, like <laughs> if I don't know something and, I, and something comes up, I, you know, can, instantly search it and come up with at least sort of the, the research solution to a problem. And you work that into the book. Like you didn't know that before you wrote it, or at least I didn't. It's like, Oh yeah. This quote from Emmanuel uh -huh. Kant. <laughs> yeah. It makes me look like I'd studied Emmanuel Kant for like two years. Like, no, I just found this on the internet. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, yeah. I mean, also like I was focusing on the, and it seems like a lot of people focus on jo uh, Josh and Luis and survivor song, but the, but also like growing things 
has the story that appears in head full of ghosts where right. um, in head full of ghosts, she, you know, one, there these two sisters and one of them tells a story about these things that just keep growing and growing and nothing's stopping them. And that's, and there's, there's no way to like cut them down or kill them. And it's happening all over the world. And that's what the premise of growing things is. And so it seems like you're, I don't know, like, do you have a sense of why, Certain, and there are probably other ones that I don't know that you've picked up, you know, that you that you've developed that just nobody's caught you out on yet. But is it is there a reason, you know, like where you're like, oh yeah, this this little idea is stored here in this other story, and I've got to let it um, develop, evolve, like become its own thing. Um, because in, you know, you almost could go through now all the books that you already have and create the premises of all your other books if you wanted to because <laughs> <laughs> i just rehash everything uh no no, no, yeah, yeah. no, no i'm sense. joking i'm joking I mean, you no. contain so much yeah yeah no 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 i and i don't mean that at all like in a bad way <laughs> no i mean writers you're supposed to chase your obsessions like even if you're not even if you don't realize it um mm. like you have it pointed out to you like oh um oh yeah i guess that's true like you know even before i wrote a head full of ghosts and, you know, in the first decade of the 2000s, so many of the short stories I was writing involved families or, you know, kids or, you know, or the parent-kid dynamic, kid-parent dynamic flipped around. And at some point I was like, you know, you write about like kids and parenting a lot. I'm like, oh, I had no idea. <laughs> like, oh, I guess you're right. <laughs> right. Um, which is fine. Like, I, I have no anxiety with that whatsoever. It's like, you're going to write what, what you're sort of obsessed with. And that's what you should do as a writer. That's part of your voice. Like... You know, I mean, most every plot, how many plots are we up to now? Like, it used to be seven. Uh, I think there's like 37 plots in the world or something. <laughs> you know, most everything's been done before, but what's different is you. What's different are your obsessions, your voice. So um, lean into it, like, even if you're not doing it consciously. Yeah, I mean, and the world changes. So, right. So, like, more plots become available to right. us, of, of course. I mean, I think um, this guy, Zachary Schomburg, who is on the show, he's a poet. And he writes these poems that are like horror poems. They're so good. Mm. He has this book called Scary No Scary, which is <laughs> kind of terrifying sometimes. Mm. And, uh, you know, he said that he started indexing his books of poetry, like for the words. Because I, I was like, why do you keep writing about hummingbirds and deer and like so whatever else it is, maybe jaguars? I think he was, he's like, I started keeping an index because I thought maybe I could know what my unconscious was if I started indexing mm. the words. And I think you know, probably it's not just the plots, but also, you know, just even going through and having someone index your book could probably mess you up. I think <laughs> you looked yeah. at like, Oh <laughs> shit. Why do I keep saying, I don't know, right. like cabbages. I don't know why. See now <laughs> I came up with that word for some stupid reason, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Uh, I love the word douse, like, you know, a dowsing rod. Uh huh. And I definitely, I, I noticed it started coming up in a bunch of different stories and someone who reviewed a story is like, oh, I love your use of DAOs here. So I'm, like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue using it. I don't know what that means. But again, maybe that's like the weird, like supernatural, not really supernatural, right? The ah, idea that uh -huh. you can divine where water is with a stick. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. Or maybe there's a natural explanation to it. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. No, that's really that's really funny. <laughs> well, and in where I grew up in Pennsylvania, people I mean, and certainly in Ireland, like people douse all the time, like still. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, 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 I mean, it's not like super common, but especially like in the sort of Pennsylvania Dutch communities, you know, near mm. where I live, but um, 
Yeah, well, one of the things that keeps coming up are the like stylistic breaks, right? And like the sort of devices, like story told in photographs, uh, the blog, you know, interrupting the narrative, voice notes, whatever. So there's kind of a, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if these are all kind of coming from the same urge to like split or like shatter the narrative. Well, maybe not because some of your short stories actually just use the mm-hmm. the device like completely right. throughout. Um, but I'm wondering what that's about the the d- device literally like because a lot of times they rely on some sort of electronic <laughs> right. device, but also a device like you know um, as a as a writer. I mean, you know, on some levels, or sound lames. Like I just think like you know, postmodern devices like that, for lack of a better phrase, is uh, just, they're just cool. Like I get excited when I read them. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think though, like for me, in a more utilitarian way of thinking of it is, you know, I'm trying to write horror stories that people read now in the present. You know, I don't worry about what, what this would read like five, 10, however years from now, like who cares? Like I'm trying to write a story for now, you know? So like, I feel like it kind of has to involve sort of, depending on the story, but, you know, it has to involve text or Twitter or cell phones or, or, or things like that. Um, that said, I think, you know, particularly in short fiction, I'm drawn to the challenge of those different modes. Mm. And the challenge is how do I make it part and parcel of the theme of the story, you know, as opposed to just like, Oh, this is a cute little gimmick kind of thing. Like it has to serve the story. Like it took me a yeah. couple of years to come up with <clears throat> how I would write notes from the dog walkers. Like I had like, Oh, mm. I want to do a story where the notes are from dog walkers. Cause you know, we, we had a rescue and kids were older. So like we didn't have someone home every day necessarily. This is obviously pre pandemic. So it was like a few days a week, we're going to hire a dog walker, you know, and they would leave the notes as described in the beginning of the story. It's like, this is great. I get a, <laughs> you know, how can I write the story? And it took me a while to figure out how to write it so that it wouldn't just be like this weird little gimmick. Um, but yeah, that that's a lot of times like the, that frame being device is actually part of the what if of the story. For me. Right. Um, and so then I have to kind of figure out how to use it. Yeah, I think it was like, I can't remember. I think I saw, yeah, it was Toby Hooper was talking about, I think that's who it was. I went to see him speak and he was talking about how like more and more you can just see directors and writers trying to get rid of the cell phone, like before it can have any impact. Like, mm-hmm. how do I make sure there's no signal? How do I make sure that the phones get stolen? They fall sure. in the water, you know, whatever. Because it resolves too many problems that horror <laughs> brings up, you know, like certainly yeah. I was watching them um, like Buffy again and the hush episode where they're like writing everything on whiteboards um, instead of just texting each other, you know, sure. <laughs> it just like changes <laughs> the whole thing. But I think like at some point it, it's shifted where now it's like, no, that is, I mean, obviously black mirror is the, best, the most popular example, but maybe like right. go, there's that, not horror novel ghoster ghosted um or ghoster oh i'm so sorry to the author because i really enjoyed the <laughs> book but i'll put in the show notes yeah which is all about like te- you know text messaging right. i'm reading this book called the appeal right now which is this sort of crime novel that is all through emails and texting mm-hmm. and i think at some point it just becomes so saturated that like i guess to ignore it really or just to try to get it out of the picture there's a kind of horrible resignation. Like we can't get you out of the picture. I mean, you know, unless there's a zombie apocalypse, in which case then no one has technology anymore and everybody's free of social media. And it's actually quite beautiful, except for the people that are going to eat and kill you. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. I mean, I've I've done both like, you know, with Kevin in the world, 
you know, I needed cell phones gone for that story. So, you know, there are still places that exist where mm-hmm. like you can go to a cabin at the lake and be away from, you know, the signal that becomes part of the horror for the, for the characters is the realization that they are disconnected. But whereas something like, you know, a head full of ghosts, um, the horror to me is the interconnectedness is the idea that we're flooded with so much data that that, that was my approach to the ambiguity in that novel was to mm-hmm. sort of mirror what we live through. Like, you know, no, the ambiguity isn't me withholding anything from you. I've told you everything. In fact, I've told you too much. <laughs> I've given you too much information and you have to try to sift through that, you know, buzzing mist of data to figure out what's real or not. Um, and even, you know, something like disappearance of devil's oh, rock. Yeah. yeah. I worked with the idea that, you know, just because we have cell phones, it actually made it harder to figure out what happened to Tommy. You know, yeah. at, at that point <laughs> in writing it, I wrote the novel in 2015, uh, where Snapchat was, it's probably still is, you know, the, the, the app of choice for a lot of kids, you know, and, you know, the idea that those <laughs> messages disappear or where they go and like, does, mm-hmm. you know, do the police have access to those? Is there a server that keeps them? So that was sort of the goal was to, to, you know, yeah, this kid disappeared. It actually became harder to find them because of mm. the intrusion of media. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, it. that's a really great example from, from that book. I hadn't thought of it in there, but there's a, so basically, you know, in that, in that novel, some like, kid disappears, no spoiler there. That happens. Yeah, that happens, <laughs> happens the title, <laughs> but, um, <Yeah. laughs> but it, his, his mom sees a ghost image of him and it's horrific. I keep saying horrific, but it is really, I mean, that novel is truly more than any of the others. It's really affecting, I think in a way that's really, yeah, I, I, for me at least, but, um, but that ghost is absolutely for the person who sees it. I absolutely saw this. I absolutely saw it. It was so potent. It was so intense. And then later there's a, a whole thing with um, like motion detection stuff using an app and phones that should be actually provide proof, but mm. is completely ambiguous. So right. like the, the, the thing that's supposed to be ambiguous, which is like, I just saw a shadow out of the corner of my eye. And then versus the thing that's supposed to be completely certain, which is this technology they play off each other. And then there's, there's this weird thing in between too, which is really fucking scary, man. It's really scary (laughs) where like one of the characters is like, you know, and, and yeah, one of the characters is like, you know, the devil's always basically in your peripheral vision, like, Mm. and and that touches on something that one of the other characters is experiencing with a ghost as well, but the devil's always in your peripheral vision. And it's, and so then there's like the, the always present, but you can't see it. The, you see it, but, and and you should be able to believe it, but you can't believe it. And then there's like, I shouldn't be able to see this, but I absolutely believe it now that I've seen it. <laughs> so there's like these kinds of certainty, like all around that kind of stuff that I think is, oh, it's, it's really, and it's, it's, it's almost like intoxicatingly scary. Like you're just swaying in it the whole time, you know? Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. Like, I don't know if people feel this way, but I think we're finding out like, even in the age of surveillance, it's it does like leaving more questions than than answers at times mm. like you know using like the u.s government's release of the ufo stuff uh-huh. uh, which i'm quite you know i'm skeptical of all of it as you as you get to take but like the idea <laughs> that they've you know great we've got these images but what does that mean like it still doesn't mm. doesn't show anything it, you know just leads to more to more questions or even like use like an everyday 
I don't know if you watch sports at all, but <laughs> you know, as a sports fan, you know, the idea the of proper video... homosexual. So the answer is no, but please. <laughs> but you know, now they have video review for all these sports, and it's actually made yeah. it harder to determine, uh, you know, what's supposed to happen. Like, you know, they'll they'll uh, you know go down to where you can see something brushing a finger, but that's not really the that yeah. wasn't the intent of the rule. Like, and and it slows down the games. Um, yeah. So it's made it worse. Like I think they should get rid of all video review for all sports. <laughs> That's my side, uh, <laughs> my side, uh, agenda there, but yeah, no, like, mm. you know, I do think that, you know, aside from like mm. real information and misinformation, I don't want to like brush that aside. Cause that's the biggest problem I think we have today. Aside from that part of it, you know, the idea of, of all these videos now, it's, <laughs> I don't think it's answering as many questions as people think. Yeah. And, and what's the intent? I mean, that's my question is right. like, what kind of people do we want to be if our whole lives have to rest on a principle of certainty? And, and to, to the point that we create things to make things more certain for us that make things less certain. I mean, <clears throat> certainly like facticity is just like fucking impossible to wade through. And it's almost like, yeah, maybe again, this free will determinism thing is almost like, I'd rather not develop a moral sense. Like I'd rather just have the fact handed to me, but mm. now that's not available anymore. So all I'm left with is a shattering of facts and no moral sense. <laughs> so yeah, it's and, like, and, right. And curated yeah. facts, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah. So, okay. Maybe, maybe I want to, yeah. I want to turn to the fact that like, so for anyone who's read your novels, most of them, well, at least I would say Cabin at the End of the World, Survivor Song, Disappearance of, yeah, all, all those sort of the, the big horror novels, mm-hmm. they could, um, they could all be plays really. I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've thought of this, but like, especially they're so confined and they really just play on a few characters so intensely that I could see them playing out as these escalating dramatic Thing. So one, I want to talk about just sort of the plot driven and kind of mellow dramatic aspect of horror. Cause I mean, everything mm. is like, it's really everybody's horror for the most part. It's just so huge yeah. and preposterous and like overdone. But I mean that as a good thing, you know, I mean, like if you watch a, I mean, what could be more melodramatic than watching like saw or something? I mean, not that I like mm-hmm. those, but like, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just right. like, come on, you know, like, <laughs> like some grand, you know, like theater or something like that. Yeah. So, so one, I wanted to talk about that as just this sort of dramatic kind of thing. I don't know if you think in terms of melodrama at all or, um, or exaggeration, mm-hmm. um, but also maybe this sort of theatrical confinement, you know? Well, with Cabin, I definitely, you know, not that I have any experience writing a, a you know, a play, uh, writing a play. I did in my head imagine, okay, yeah, this could be a play, mm. you know, combined to the cabin with the exception of what they see on the television. Um, yeah. So I definitely certainly imagine that as, as a play. And as far as like, I don't know, <laughs> I, I laugh because like, I feel like I, I zero in on certain characters because I feel like I have a really hard time with like <laughs> cast of thousands. Like I haven't really done mm. that. I mean, maybe the closest is disappearance of Devil's Rock with, I don't know, the three boys, the sister, the mom, the grandma, you know, and the, right. you know, the detective and a few other characters. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, um, in one sense, I, I put myself in every story. I mean, every, 
sort of the, the main characters or some piece of me. So I don't want to, I guess, stretch myself too thin. I don't know. That, that's, uh, it, it, it's something I sort of gravitate towards. Um, hmm. It's hard to say like why. I, I, I guess the maybe why part is because I, I, I'm, I remain fascinated as a reader is how do characters, how do they survive what, it, what this is that we're doing? Like, how do we get through this? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it, it tends to be sort of more personal kind of stories. Mm-hmm. You know, even like Survivor Song was a, was an absolute choice. Like, no, I want it. Once I had the, the bare bones of the idea of the stories, like I want this to be over four to six hours. I really want to focus hard in on two characters, even though like a couple more that we talked about show up. You know, I really wanted it to be sort of like a close interior almost, you know, look at just a really small set of characters. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that was a long ramble. I don't know if I answered the question. No, no. <laughs> well, don't, you, yeah. first of all, you don't have to answer it, but I, yeah, yeah. but I, no, cause I just like what's, what, what came out there. Cause I'm also thinking about like, you know, in, in cabinet in the world, you do this thing with space and in survivor song, I think you do it with time where there's this like condensing, like it becomes claustrophobic. Like we only have this much time in survivor song to get someone mm. treated um, and then get another procedure done. But we, and we, and we only have, you know, we only have this much space to deal with the problem. I guess there's a ticking clock as well. Mm. Um, Sorry, I think I think I read you once saying, "Fuck <laughs> off, Hollywood." I'm not solving the ticking yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah, the ticking yeah. clock is in like a lot of your books, so I don't know why there's there's an issue there. Yeah, but I, it seems like there's a confinement in space and a confine in cabinet at the end of the world and a confinement in time, Survivor Song, and yet right. like it extends across space and time respectively as well. Where like, and and that is, I mean, that is something that we've all experienced in our lives. You know, in the past year and a half, where you're in your house and confined in space, but yet you feel more connected to the rest of the world than, than ever, you know, and you mm-hmm. have all this time and like t- your sense of time is also changing. Um, and you have to figure out ways to sort of populate it. So I think, yeah, I mean, I know you didn't write those during a pandemic, but it's, right. it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, even that connection to the rest of the world, like how I hate to say it real, but like, how real is it? Like, you know, I mean, that kind of messes with you. Um, no, to go back to the ticking clock thing, I, I guess I just, I, I chafe at putting that sort of metaphor into a story when it doesn't exist kind of thing, you know, cause it's kind of like my very brief experience with Hollywood. It's like the default to say, okay, where's the, what's the ticking clock in the story? It's like, well, the story doesn't have one. It doesn't need one. Um, that's actually been a, a challenge for this most recent novel it does take place over almost 40 years uh or at least 30 yeah 30 i guess is more accurate you know much bigger time uh stretch of time that was you know especially after writing the last two where they were so compressed time-wise mm. um that, that was <laughs> that was a challenge to not go into every detail of what's like oh, i can't do the detail of everything it's 30 years this thing will be 3,000 pages <laughs> not, not that i ever have a 3,000 page book in me it felt like my 350 felt like 3000 at times, but it's, it's your, it's Paul Tremblay's Alice Monroe novel over 30 yeah. <laughs> generations. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah. And so I, maybe, maybe we'll just, maybe we'll wind down here. I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about the fact that people are probably writing to you commenting on survivor song and pandemic stuff well and i know that they were because you just said it but also i had Mm -hmm. read before that 
Um, and that, you know how you you said something about having respect for the violence that's going to be in your books, like treating it with a kind of care mm-hmm. so that it actually has an effect. Um, you know, for the characters and for the readers. And where I'm going with this basically is thinking about like because I think about this with horror all the time, like the responsibility of releasing a kind of <clears throat> condensed, intense darkness into the world um, through creating it, you know, and this guy, J.F. Martello, who's co-host of this podcast called Weird Studies, he said something mm-hmm. like, you know, the hope is that we, uh, the hope is that we're condemned in art so that we might be free in life or something. He says something like mm. that. The hope is if we condemn, if we condemn ourselves in art, we'll be saved in life. And I, I'm wondering if <clears throat> one, there's a, a, a kind of uh, responsibility or burden in writing this kind of stuff. Cause I know it, like, I know I've written things where I'm like, is this okay? Like I actually, yeah. you know, wrote a scene where I call my friend and I'm like, is this all right? You know, did I do something bad here? <laughs> um, but also like, you know, what, what you feel is happening there with that decision to make that kind of darkness. <clears throat> yeah. You know, that's hard. I mean, that's a hard thing to, to talk about. I mean, I think you know, every writer has sort of like a personal line. Like I know I do, but at the same time, you know, if a story is written well, I mean, th- that's a big distinction between like, mm. you know, saying like, you know, in general, you know, I hope stories can be what they are like these messy, weird things. And we don't try to, force them into being like, you know, responsible humans, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously if it's like a poorly written story, that's, you know, just awful things happening with awful people. I mean, I'm not interested in those kind of stories, but again, like going back to the idea of like, you know, the story isn't the writer, like the story is something, you know, obviously that you just created, but like, I don't know, I like the idea of stories being their own thing and they can be condemned for sure. Um, but I don't know, like I, I chafe a little bit, you know, maybe because I'm a, you know, and that's me with my 50 year old cis male privilege talking in some ways um, of like stories being their own thing, right? Like they just get to be out there yeah. and that's fine. And then people can react to them and, and talk about them and tear them apart. And that's, that's what stories are there for. Um, so I don't know, like, I would hate to think that stories aren't being written for fear of what public reaction might be to them. It's like, well, write them and let the public discuss it. Like, again, if, if there's any value to them, like I'm sort of like discarding stories that are just like hateful and, and terrible stories. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, like, you know, the idea of that, that personal sort of line, which is sort of what you were talking about initially is like, Oh God, should I put this out there? Um, well, I don't feel like I, it's not a political, like it's not a political, yeah. cause I don't, I don't care about that so much. Right. It's more like, I don't know. Like when I was watching game of Thrones, I just Mm. thought, Oh, this sucks. Like there was a certain point at which I was like, this is actually, instead of creating characters, it's just disposing of them in a way that's interesting. And I thought that's bad art. And, and if I think art is powerful, which I do, then that's actually a huge crime is actually just to make this shit, you know, and like substitute violence for character. Like, absolutely. And so then I really liked what you said. Like I respect the violence that I introduce, not because I thought, oh, well, like violence happens to people. So Paul is, you know, being right. you know, politically adept and, uh, and careful here, but rather 
because I thought, no, he's actually understanding like the contours of, you know, writing, you know, which a lot of people who write dark things do, do not. And so I thought it was a really beautiful, it was really beautifully put actually. So I think it's something like that, like actually the bad, bad art is worse than the content of whatever the bad art portrays, if that makes sense. Right. No, I, yeah, that's a much more artful way of putting it. Thank you. (laughs) Saving for myself. No, bad art rings false. I think it was what it comes down to. Um, So like, you know, the stories I'm trying to write, typically I'm trying to root it in in a reality. And so, you know, there are consequences to violence and I want to try to respect the experience, obviously from the victim, but the witnesses will be forever different. And, you know, even, you know, the perpetrator of the violence is going to be changed by what happens and try to respect that part of it. You know, it'd be different if I was writing Evil Dead 2. And I love Evil Dead 2. It's like one of my favorite things. The violence in that is doing something totally different. Um, And I don't think, you know, Evil Dead 2 doesn't have the mistakes that Game of Thrones, that I would agree, has, you know, particularly the TV show, because I haven't read the books. Yeah, Um, yeah. Sorry, sorry, George. (laughs) I didn't mean the books. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Right. No, well said. (laughs) Well, I, I think I was asking more towards like, like if I watch Twin Peaks or... Um, Mulholland Drive or something like that. Like I actually feel in those, or or maybe Hereditary and Suspiria, the the remake. Like mm-hmm. I'm watching actually evil somehow being like presented for real and like contained. I don't mean like well, I see something and it's scary and I go home and I'm scared, but actually like I'm encountered with something that's so intensely evil that i feel threatened by it like i don't know if you've watched the third season of twin peaks like the more recent ones that came out earlier but there's this episode where the bomb this bomb goes off and you're in it and it was the first time one of the first times i felt like whoa like probably like what people felt when they watched the ring video the ring or you know listen to the record in evil dead or whatever where it's like this is going to come through like this is not going to be contained Right. And it was anyway, but I felt actually really frightened that it was going to come to me. And I think that's sort of what I was trying to get at. I mean, maybe it's not, I'm still not quite articulating it, but, and I think maybe it's why I hone in on Disappearance of Devil's Rock, although I'd like all your books. There's something about that, that there's something truly like evil in it that I'm like, fuck, like this could come through and this mm. could get me. And yet, like, thank God it exists in a book because it's not going to now. It's going to stay, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's that feeling you described, like, I hadn't been able to describe it, but I think that's the feeling I get from watching Lake Mungo. Or the uh, very first time I watched Lake Mungo, um, uh, you know, there's a scene in that, one scene toward the end of that movie that, yeah, broke my brain. And, you know, in Disappearance of Devil's Rock, a lot of ways, is trying to recapture that. Like, I make no bones about, <laughs> right. I make no bones about that book being, you know, <laughs> owing, a, owing a huge debt to that movie and a couple of other Australian films as well. Mm. But, yeah, that's sort of like the weird, inexplicable lore of horror, right? Like, there are these things that really affect me. Um, but, like, I keep going back for it. And, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure why. But there is a line, like... Mm. I, I probably would have a hard time watching that Twin Peaks because, you know, one of my deepest fears from my childhood is dying in a nuclear explosion. Mm. And I pretty much avoid, <laughs> I haven't really written about it. Uh, I certainly avoid media that mm. involves it because I knew it would be too upsetting. Like I haven't read The Road just because I know that would be too upsetting for me by Cormac McCarthy. Um, you know, as a kid, I avoided watching things like, you know, The Day After. Um, like I won't watch, I won't watch the movie Threads. It's like, nope, I'm just not going there. <laughs> No, I mean we we grew up 
I mean, I'm 44 almost. So we grew up with that yeah. Yeah. hovering and it's just like that kind of obliteration. I mean, I can watch other end of the world stuff, but for some reason, same. And I think, I think maybe it's like less about the death, like the mass death and more about like these assholes, like these, <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like the authority, the blundering authority is the thing that like really makes mm. me angry or scared or something Absolutely. like that, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, listen, I have like 8 million other questions, but I think we should, I think maybe we'll wrap it up and, um, and we'll get back to the 8 million other questions and you know, maybe you can come on again after yeah, absolutely. it comes out and we can, and we can talk more. I want to talk about detective fiction. I want to talk about, I mean, there's so many things I want to talk about, but okay. we'll, we'll do it. And, uh, it's just been a pleasure talking with you, Paul Trembley. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Connor. This was a blast. And I know viewers can't really see it, but now I have to get your t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> they can see it in the promo image. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good one. Um, everybody, uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye.